tomorrow night is our Breathe service for the month of February. It is at 9.30 p.m. tomorrow night in the Commons. And here's the kicker. It's for chapel credit. So for those of you who right now have six skips and you don't want to fill out any chapel skip sheets, you can come to this. It's a lot more fun and it'll be really great. And you get to worship God in the process. So that's tomorrow night and I'll be speaking about what God does uh, with us during our driest seasons of life. Um, hey, Charlie, this week's like spring break, isn't it? That nuts? I mean, I'm headed to California. Who's, who's going someplace for spring break? No, I'm only going there in my dream. Where are you going spring break? I'm going to South Dakota. Yeah, that's the only place that's colder than here. The Corral, they're going on spring break to New York. Who's going south? Who's going to Florida right now? Okay, now look it. On behalf of all of your professors, spring break doesn't start until Friday afternoon, evening, right? We have one more week, right? Actually, I emailed the president today. I asked him to make a presidential degree, degree that, uh, that we start on Wednesday for spring break if I can get at least 100 people to raise their hands and vote for that, and then you're going to sign a petition after... Oh, I guess not. This is going to be good times, isn't it? You guys looking forward to it? We have one more week to hang out together, and then we're out of here for a week, so enjoy the week off. What we're going to do right now, though, is uh, ask you to do something. We're going to ask you to stand really quick. Just go ahead and stand to your feet. Say hi to at least two people. Give them a little high five. Give them a little fist bump. It's like get to know somebody who's sitting right next to you. I didn't, even, I didn't say give them a hug. Knock that off. Gee whiz. The person next to you right now, might, you might even know them. Now you do. Now they're your friends. We got hugs going on up here. Check that out. That's good days. All right, now. Now that you know everybody, let's pray. Just stand up, stay standing, let's pray together. Father, um, we ask you right now that as we gather today in this place, it's Monday morning, we all know that, and we just ask that you unify us today. Um, today is a chance for us to be together in this place and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, that you love us, and Father, we get to say we love you, and we are so grateful for who you are and what you've done in our lives, and we... we we honor you in the way we live. In your name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As one student, Jake, takes off, I want to ask another student, Phil, to join me on stage. Fist bump. And he's got a couple of things he wants to tell you guys. Hello, everybody. It's nice to see you all. There are a lot of people out there. So uh, I'm going to start off uh, our chapel message today by talking a bit about dialogue. Now, there's two big types of dialogue that we as Christians engage in. One is dialogue that we have with Christians, us, and non-Christians. And then there's another type of dialogue, a dialogue that I want to speak to, that I deeply believe we need to address on this campus and in the church. And that dialogue is dialogue between Christians that hold different opinions on theological issues. Now, I'm not Wesleyan, I grew up Reformed Presbyterian, uh, but I'm at a Wesleyan university. So when I sit in a theology class, whether it be with Dr. Bounds or someone else, I'm likely to disagree with something. And as I hear 
when Dr. Bounds specifically will go through the different theological opinions that denominations hold on things like drinking and dancing and homosexuality and marriage and what heaven and hell are like. I'm not going to agree with everything, but that doesn't mean that I ignore what he has to say. Because somebody that I love agrees with something else that he says. Somebody that I love believes that. And I, as their brother in Christ, knowing their heart, don't have the right to say that they're not a Christian for that. There's a place that we're really, really uncomfortable being as humans and as Christians, and that's a place called tension. We'll do anything to resolve tension, whether it's tension with a roommate because they won't put down the toilet seat, or tension with a significant other because they forgot Valentine's Day a little bit ago, or tension inside when we have to make some kind of decision that no matter what the outcome is, it's going to hurt someone. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was imprisoned in Birmingham, Alabama. And while he was in prison there, he wrote a letter to the white clergyman that had gotten him locked up. And in that letter, he took some time to reflect on his life up to that point, and he wrote, I've discovered that I am not uncomfortable with the word tension. I've opposed nonviolent tension my entire life. And I believe that there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. We have to learn why we all have differences theologically, how we come to different convictions in our faith. But it's important to also recognize that we have a lot of things in common. We're all sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we need to take opportunities to pray and rejoice and celebrate that we also are redeemed in Christ. We need to take opportunities to celebrate the fact that we can selflessly love each other because we have Christ's selfless love. And in the midst of those commonalities, we're able to note that sometimes we're going to disagree. But the important thing isn't that we disagree. The important thing is that we learn each other's hearts. The important thing is that we earnestly search together for answers, and in the end, if we disagree, that's okay. We have to learn it's okay to disagree. So how do we do that? Well, Dr. Lowe's going to give a message in a little bit, but I want to give five basic thoughts about what it is to dialogue. And if you guys don't write it down right now, that's okay. But if you guys forget it and want to know it, feel free to stop me in the hallway or email me, phil.ross, one L, two S's. And I'll be happy to share it with you. The first of these things is to begin a relationship. Talk with someone. All of you do that on a regular basis. The second thing is to be truthful and transparent in those relationships, but be respectful. Because if I ask you to be truthful and transparent about everything you believe, at some point, you're going to realize, man, this is terrifying. At some point. Third, it's important not to get stuck on differences. When you run into something that you vehemently disagree with, 
You have to push through and learn why others believe what they believe, especially our Christian brothers and sisters. Fourth, we have to allow God to work through everyone involved. We have to look for the Christ in each other. And finally, we have to allow God to work on his own timetable because we individually are not the answer. We may plant a seed or water a seed, but we also may do nothing. Conversation for conversation's sake can be useful. Thank you for everything, and I'll ask Dr. Lowe if you could come on stage now. Oh, sorry, Luke. The word of the Lord from Acts chapter 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, and fell into a tra- he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house to pray and hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Thanks, Luke. Dear ones, I'd like to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you do me a favor? We have some guests that are here that are visiting the university. I think they're all over this direction. Will you make them feel welcome here today, please? That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Over the past few years, discussions regarding homosexuality have come to the fore with greater frequency than I can ever remember. Questions and reactions of all kinds have surfaced about homosexuality in response to the changing culture that you and I are living in. A question that many church leaders claim that we need to be grappling with is this one here. How should Christians respond to those of the gay community? In fact, reality is this. IWU is faced with the exact same question that we are going to have to grapple with. 
As I enter further into my thoughts this morning, as many of you realize this weekend that there have been some concerns about this chapel, which was supposed to be a student government association chapel. Some of those concerns I think are legitimate. Some of them I think were, un, were not legitimate. But I want you to know something, is that I want you to know that when SGA, that their desire was always all along, they want to make it clear to this community that they remain committed to the biblical view of sexuality and marriage. That the intent of this chapel was always to help prepare students to minister in a culture where they will live and work alongside individuals who are homosexual to be prepared to know how to interact with these individuals in ways that express the love of Jesus Christ and draw them then towards the Savior. A year ago, Christopher Ewan sent me a book that he wrote entitled, Out of a Far Country. A book that's filled with chapters describing Chris's own journey of dealing with homosexuality as well as encouragement to those who are wanting to minister to this community. I want you to know his book really is very eye-opening. And I would suggest that every single one of you, if you have opportunity to get that book and read it, because what I appreciate about his writing is that he just doesn't give us facts, but he gets us to the emotional level. In fact, Dr. Joseph Stoll, the president of Cornerstone University, wrote, Christopher's clear, sensitive, and solid biblical approach to an increasingly complicated subject, it is strengthened by the transparency of his testimony and his unwavering commitment to living a life that truly is pleasing to Jesus Christ. You see, Stowell's endorsement of Ewan's book, it grabbed my attention. But it was the flyer that Christopher sent me with his book that spoke even deeper to my heart. Because on this flyer, in deep, bold letters, was the question, homosexuality in the church, are you equipped? And then it hit me, and it dawned on me, am I, Jim Lowe, equipped to effectively minister to the gay community? You see, I want you again to hear this, as this really was the SGA's hope for this chapel, to begin to prepare us to understand ways that we can be equipped to build bridges as a means to connect with a population grouping that is oftentimes misunderstood, made fun of, or isolated, but comprised, and you need to hear this, comprised of individuals whom Jesus Christ loves and seeks after. You see, my personal observation is this. I believe that our actions, if we are not careful, can cause damage and divisions in place of love and unity, which prevents bridges of understanding from being built, causing ineffective evangelism to take place. You see, I understand how a lack of proper equipping can hinder successful witnessing from occurring, because as a green missionary of years ago, I did not know how to build bridges that would allow me the means then of witnessing to Zimbabweans in Africa. If you knew me back then, you would have met a young man who was filled with pride, arrogance, insensitivity, and inflexibility. It was only after I began learning the importance of being a bridge builder, which actually means the bridge in a Latin language, that's what the word priest means, one who builds a bridge, did I begin to see Africans make the move to respond to God's message through his messenger. And so the book of Acts, I believe, that presents to us a process of building bridges. That's what I want to share this morning. That first of all, Acts chapter 10, it intimates that we, first of all, need to be willing to destroy. Peter saw a vision that came from God. And in the midst of this vision, God said to Peter, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
And as I have read this passage over and over, this is how it speaks to me. That we may see those of other practices and other beliefs as being impure, but our God is able to make them clean. You see, dear ones, I've seen individuals, I have seen murderers, I've seen witch doctors, I've seen criminals, I've seen drug addicts, I've seen prostitutes, that the Lord Jesus Christ has done a wonder in their lives and made them his child. On one occasion, the writer of the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus Christ went up to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Jesus Christ became so upset with what he saw that he made a whip, a whip out of cords, and drove those that were selling animals from the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. There were different reasons why Jesus Christ was upset. He was upset because the money changers had turned God's house into a market, a, a marketplace for profit. Jesus Christ was upset because the temple, God's house, was being desecrated and that worship was taking place without much reverence. In fact, William Barclay writes that worship without reverence is a terrible thing since it is worship that does not realize the holiness of God. And there's another reason why Jesus Christ was upset. The writer of Mark has a curious addition which none of the other gospel writers include. But Mark has Jesus Christ saying, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. The temple consisted of a series of courts leading into the temple proper and into the holy place. There was first of all the court of the Gentiles. And then there was the court of the woman. And then there was the court of the Israelites. And then the court of the priests. The selling and the exchanging of money was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, the only place into which a Gentile was allowed to be. Beyond that point, access to that individual who was a Gentile was barred. And therefore, if Gentiles wanted to pray, if they wanted to seek to connect with God, the selling and the exchanging of money in the court of Gentiles, it was hindering them from being able to do so. And so Jesus Christ, he was moved to the depth of his heart because men who were possibly seeking God were being shut out from the presence of God. And so a question that you and I, and I believe that this is really the question that I think Jess G.A. wanted us to grapple with, the question that we need to ask ourselves sometimes needs to be this. Is there anything within us who are the body of Jesus Christ which verges on a snobbishness, an exclusiveness, a coldness, a lack of hospitality, an arrogance, a belief that God will not save certain people, a prejudice which keeps individuals who are quote-unquote different out from the kingdom of God. You see, dear ones, God is desirous for all to find his salvation. The Word of God states, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. During the first chapel of this academic year, I shared that one of the themes I hoped that this academic community would understand and live out is this, that with God, salvation is possible for all. For the majority of you inside this auditorium, you already understand that truth because God has done a work of salvation within your life. And I want you to know that to me is stupendous, wonderful news. 
But I want us to also think beyond ourselves and realize that Christ also wants the adherents of other world religions and those who come from other cultures and those who are part of the gay community to also be saved. As an example of this love of God, let's talk about those of the Islamic faith. You see, I want you to know that God loves those who are Muslims and he desires for them to be his children. I feel bad and I feel embarrassed when I hear some who profess to be Christians declaring that God did not come and die for the Muslims, or he did not come and die for the Buddhists, or he did not come die for the Hindus, or what I heard years ago when I was a little child, someone came along and made a statement that went like this, God didn't come to die for the Chinese. Little do they know, I'm a Christian. A few years ago in Bridgeport, Texas, about a dozen Christians carrying placards and yelling, Islam is a lie, angrily confronted worshipers outside of Fairfield Avenue Mosque. Jesus hates Muslims, they screamed at worshipers arriving at the mosque to prepare for the holy month of Ramadan. One protester pointing at a group of young children that were leaving the mosque with venom in his voice yelled out, murderers! The organizer of the protest was yelling at the Muslim worshipers with a bullhorn, this is a war in America and we are taking it to the mosques around the country. The horrors of ISIL in the last few months have, have intensified some of the attitudes of negativity that even those who claim to be Christians have towards those of the Islamic faith. Well, dear ones, we need to destroy attitudes and thinking that hinders us from reaching out to others who think, who believe, and do things differently than us. We need to destroy actions and words and attitudes that will cause the message of love and salvation not to be seen and not to be heard. Number two, as we are to destroy, we are also to discover. You see, to be a witness for Jesus Christ, one must know, one must discover what the Bible has to say. For Peter, this discovery took place while he was on the roof praying. There were those who would teach that because God is a God of love, it doesn't really matter what a person believes, for they contend and they teach that all will go to heaven since a God of love would never condemn a person to eternal punishment. I have heard people say, believe what you want, all religions will get you to heaven. And I have, and I have, and had never, and I, yeah. <laughs> I want you to know I had never done any building until I got to Zimbabwe, Africa. Being a missionary, the Zimbabweans assumed that because I was the missionary, I could build. And thus when it came time to construct a Kamala Wesleyan church, they had no hesitation in asking me to help build. In fact, they wanted me to supervise the building project. Now, you need to know that when I was a little kid, I had played with Legos and Lincoln Logs. And so building projects didn't really seem all that difficult for me because I was using, when I was using Legos and using Lincoln Logs to build. And so my thinking went something like this. Building a church is just a bigger version of biggie building with toy Legos and Lincoln Logs. And so merrily, I began to build and supervise the church building program, but it didn't take long for the nationals to realize that their umfundisi had no idea how to build. The cement blocks that I had laid down for the foundation looked sloppy and zigzagged in and out like a snake. Sunny Makusha, looking rather disgusted, came to me and asked the question, umfundisi, didn't you use a plumb line? Use a what? 
Sonny then went to his toolbox and took out a plumb line and proceeded to explain to me that a plumb line is a tool used by masons to build walls that are straight and true. In fact, Amos in the Old Testament referred to this tool, telling those listening to him that God would measure humankind and their adoration to him by his standards and by his word. That God's word is the plumb line that needs to be used to define what it is Christian and what is not Christian. You see, the basic tenets of Christianity can be discovered in the words which are contained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. The plumb line that defines for us what a person must believe and live out if one is to be a Christian. It contains three key teachings upon which Christianity is based. It talks first of all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it talks about the nature of man. And thirdly, it talks about the truth and the reliability of the Word of God, the Bible. Now, I recognize that the Bible has other doctrines besides the three in which I've just listed here. But these three doctrines are the plumb line defining what it truly means to be a Christian. The plumb line of Christianity states that Jesus Christ is God and that he died for man's sin. It states that by nature man is sinful, spiritually dead, and that his only hope of salvation from sin is faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And the Christian plumb line states that the Bible is inspired by the living God and is the infallible rule of faith and practice. Or let me put it this way. I love reading. And I love living out the Apostles' Creed. It really is the best summary of the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. What do I believe? I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Would you stand up? And I'm going to ask that you stand up, and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. And so, the Apostles' Creed. I believe... If you truly believe that, will you do me a favor and say a hearty amen? amen? Okay, you may be seated. And so what do I believe? The reality is that you have just shared what I believe and what you as a Christian really should be believing. Well, dear ones, God desires all to be saved, but humankind must accept his plan. His plumb line of salvation is going to be a reality for them. I want to assure this community of the following because I think that there have been some rumblings and some things out there that really should not be out there. But I want you to know that the administration headed by our president, Dr. David Wright, and our residential CEO VP, Dr. Keith Newman, and others on this campus, we are committed to the truth of God's word and therefore to the biblical view of sexuality and marriage. I want to assure you of that. This university, though, also recognizes that God has us here for a reason, 
to prepare our students and to prepare you and to prepare ourselves to live in a shifting culture which includes all of us potentially living and working alongside individuals who are homosexual. Hear what I'm saying because I don't want you leaving here misinterpreting what I'm trying to get across. You and I are lifting in a society, in a culture, that culture is shifting. But I want you to know the Word of God does not shift. You see, we must be prepared to know how to interact in ways that express the love of Jesus Christ and draw those who are not believers towards the Savior and His uncompromising truth. Number three, if we're going to reach others who are out of the fold of Jesus Christ, we really need to learn the importance of dialogue. Because if you look in verse 27 with me just for a second, it reads, Peter talking with him, Cornelius. You need to notice a subtle little truth that is laid there. It comes along and it says, Peter, it doesn't say Peter talking to Cornelius. It has Peter talking with Cornelius. It was not Peter presenting a monodirectional lecture. The word with implies that dialogue is taking place. Now, one of the best advice that I ever got about doing ministry came from a close African pastor friend of mine who came along and one day stated, Umfundisi Jim, shut up. I didn't like that. But Umfundisi, shut up. Learn. Listen first. Then talk and minister. You see, I believe the Christians need to be willing to discover, to listen, to learn from others for the process of dialogue to begin. You see, while ministering in Southern Africa, I would often go do door-to-door -door visitation in the black townships of Johannesburg. I would carry with me Christian tracts and Zulu Bibles. As I would walk the dirt paths to meet people at their, at their shanties, I would then seek to hand them a Bible and say, I would like to encourage you to read this Bible. Often the response that I got was very, very positive. But there was one time when things did not go very smoothly. I had taken a Bible out of my shoulder bag and proceeded to offer it to Baba Mgulu, the grandfather of the house. But instead of reaching out to receive it, the old man asked me and stated to me, he said, I'll read your Bible if you will read my Koran. My response went something like this because it came out in a verbal way. And I said, I can't do that. My Bible is the word of God. Your Koran isn't. Well, I want you to know that I quickly recognized that this was a horrible mistake. Because turning his back to me and walking away, the old African man stated loud enough for me to hear, you Christians are so arrogant. You see, I am so thankful for the lessons I've learned years ago regarding cross-cultural sensitivity, but also cross-cultural insensitivity. I believe that if the church is going to have a viable, vibrant ministry to the gay community, her citizens will need to learn how to do effective, sensitive cross-cultural communication. The kind of evangelistic approach which ignorantly assumes that non-Christians have no knowledge of God and that they are worthless and pernicious and therefore should not be heard does more harm than good to the name of Jesus Christ. It tells those that we may be seeking to reach that Christians are not really interested in learning about them, really interested in getting to know them, not really interested in respecting them. It communicates the message that Christians are interested in people not as human individuals, but only as representatives of a system of thought. As many of you already realize, I was a missionary for many years. 
And during those years of training to be a cross-cultural minister, I came across an article by LeRae Berna titled, Stumbling Blocks in Intercultural Communication. Barna contends that there are stumbling blocks that may get in the way of positive communication with individuals who may have a different worldview, may have a different belief system, hindering further interactions from taking place. Can I just be very candid and transparent with you that one of the stumbling blocks I find at this university are sometimes the sharing of dumb ethnic jokes? I just heard this recently, and I'll share it with you. It goes something like this. Did you hear about the Chinese couple that had a retarded baby? They named the baby Sum Ding Wong. I hear stuff like that, and it angers me. And yet there are some on his campus, and there's somehow even in the church, they hear stuff like that, and they joke, and things like that hurt, and it causes communication, the love of Jesus Christ, to be hindered. As a former missionary, I was taught the importance of dialogue. Marcello Zago, a Catholic missionary, expressed it this way, ultimately mission must witness to and proclaim the name and mystery and the gospel of Jesus Christ through dialogue. According to missiologists, dialogue needs to be understood in a number of different ways. In the first way, it needs to be understood as practices that lead to good communication skills towards persons leading to intimate communion, which then leads to close possible friendships. I believe that in the American culture in which you and I live in, we have horrible communication skills. And you go out into the world and you go minister to a group of individuals that we come along and state that we love. This is what they say. They come along and say, you Christians talk a lot about love. I find this in America when people come talking to me. You're coming and saying, hey, I really want to talk to you. But you have your cell phones out and you're looking at your cell phone instead of looking at the person that you're supposed to be communicating with. Dear ones, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that that is not cultural sensitivity. Or let me put it this way. I think sometimes we do things that hinder the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because we are intentionally trying to be rude or anything, but because we have not been trained. I've been in cultures in the world that if you're pointing to an individual when you're talking to that individual, it is an insult. But look at how many of you in this community, when you talk, you use your fingers. Do you use your fingers to talk? Mm, yeah, you do. <laughs> mm -hmm. In some cultures in the world, you never point your finger to a person. The way you point to a person, as I've shared in some of my classes, the way you point to a person is never with your finger. You point with your tongue. Oh, I love doing that. <laughs> or you point with your chin as a sign of respect. Second, dialogue must always include an attitude of respect and friendship permeating all those activities that constitute the evangelizing mission of the church. Or let me try to explain it this way. If I were to come to Luke and say, Luke, I really care about you. But I want you to know, Luke, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're really stupid. You're really dumb. You're an ignoramus. Can I share? You're not even good looking like me. But I really do love you. Don't awe. I just gave the truth. <laughs> but Luke, talk. Don't talk. I can't hear you. <laughs> But the reality is that if I came along and treated an individual like that without any respect at all, I can come along and talk about all the love that I have for him, but it has already hindered that person from wanting to develop a friendship with me. And thirdly, dialogue needs to be understood as the practice of openness to, fairness and frankness with, respect for, sincerity towards, and appreciation for people of other Christian beliefs, those who hold a particular ideology, those for whom faith commitment is meaningless and those who have no faith at all.
In fact, Dr. Ross Langmead describes it this way. It is moving from prideful superiority to humble kindness in the way that we reach out to others. Number four, we are the ones that are called to deliver. You see, we should not allow what we believe and what we hold on to to segregate us, to separate us from people that need ministry too. Notice Peter, he was willing to enter into Cornelius' home. He went there to listen. He went there to share. You and I, we have the responsibility to deliver God's message by both our deeds as well as with our words. Our sharing must be clothed in empathetic understanding, living out Jesus Christ's teachings in, a, if, in neighborly love as well as following the golden rule. It really is asking the question, every time I come in contact with a person, how would I want to be treated? As witnesses for Jesus Christ, we should consider every encounter as an opportunity to show others the grace and the love and the truth of Jesus Christ. Suspicion, disdain, prejudice are not the foundation stones to effective witnessing. But instead, we are called to befriend those who may think differently from us or believe differently from us or do things differently from us. Dear ones, like the Apostle Paul, we should not regard anyone just from a worldly point of view. In our relationship with those of the gay community or those of other faiths, we must give concrete form to our calling as servants of reconciliation and as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. John Piper, in closing one of his messages, shared these words. My closing declaration is this. God has not called us just to win elections, but to win souls and hearts and minds. A few, a few years ago, worship team, why don't you come on up? A few years ago, we had invited a man by the name of Ken Murphy to come share at Summit. And when Ken Murphy came, he, on one of his messages, I carry a little pouch with me all the time. In this pouch are kind of the things that help me to worship the Lord. I carry with me prayer beads. I use them on a regular basis. In my little pouch, I always have a vial of oil as a means that when anyone comes up to me and wants special prayer, I will anoint that individual I have a little coin in here that someone from Mongolia gave to me saying, telling me that when I got it years ago, every time you look at it, will you pray for our country? But when Ken Murphy was here a few years ago, he gave the students that were here a little coin. And on that coin were two words, one word on each side. The one side has the word truth. The other side has the word grace. One of the dangers that can happen inside any Christian community is this, is that we begin to emphasize one over the other. We get some, some come along and focus so much on truth that they don't have much grace. Others focus so much on grace that they don't focus on truth. Dear ones, you need to understand that at Indiana Wesleyan University, the goal for us is to be balanced in both truth and grace. Because, dear ones, when you and I have that balance... That comes because of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Can I share? It's then that we become effective communicators for the kingdom of God. Amen. Will you do me a favor? It's a pretty heavy message, and I know that. But because of that, I wanted the worship to take place at the end. For you to continue to reflect on the words that were shared. But will you do me a favor? Will you stand up? 
And will you come along and recognize that, yes, we are Christians who have both truth and grace, and that's how we're supposed to minister with both truth and grace. And dear ones, will you truly worship the Lord Jesus Christ today with all that you have?